freedom is the basis for spiritual practice and spiritual alchemy because you must have it. If you don't have that, then this kind of transformative path becomes much more difficult. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. We are pleased to have joining us again, Arthur Versluis, professor and author of numerous great books, including his most recent, Conversations in Apocalyptic Times, A Guide for the Spiritual Seeker, which he co-authored with Robert J. Foss. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Arthur? That's right. Um, this is a, it's formatted in this series, in it, is formatted as a series of discussions, so one-on-one -on -one between Arthur and Robert, um, each chapter covering a, um, well, a, a different topic, but uh, the the range of the range of topics is quite wide, and the book delves very deeply. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect when I when I first started it, and but the further I got in, and the and the the more I read, um, it got to the point where. I think after the first, you know, after getting into the first two or three chapters and getting an I getting into the the dialogue um, and and getting used to the format because I'm not used to reading a dialogue. I'm used to more, you know, listening maybe listening to podcasts, but actually reading a transcript of a dialogue or even a a a writing formatted as a dialogue, like in in Plato. I'm just I'm not used to that. So after after getting used to it and getting getting into it, like I said, after the first few chapters, I had trouble putting it down and it just kind of, I found very absorbing. So, so good job. Good job on, uh, <laughs> on, on creating such a, such an absorbing book. I want, well, first, uh, I forgot to introduce ourselves. I'm Harrison Cayley and we've got, uh, Elon Martin and Adam Daniels in the studio as usual. Luke couldn't join us today. Um, but let's get right into it. What was the impetus behind writing this book, Arthur, with Robert. Well, he and I had been talking about it for years, uh, about how to develop something that is uh, immediately accessible to people. Uh, Christian theosophy and Christian mysticism more broadly is, is uh, typically, first of all, not well known at all. Uh, most people would never have heard the words Christian theosophy, even though they're Christian, uh, and from a European Christian tradition. Uh, that wouldn't be surprising at all. That's why I wrote some of my earlier books. And most people wouldn't be familiar with Platonic mysticism, which is why I wrote the book Platonic Mysticism, mm -hmm. as a way to really focus uh, uh, and clarify what this is, right? And so Conversations is a very different book, because with Conversations in Apocalyptic Times, what we're doing is through dialogue, through going back and forth, uh, providing a larger, you know, a larger but accessible approach to, uh, that begins at the very beginning. In other, world, in other words, um, it's not a book, uh, that launches immediately into here's what you need to do. Uh, what it does is provide a shift in understanding for people so that they can begin to see that there are things that have been just dropped out and stripped out, you could say, from most people's worldview in the modern world. And so 
what it does is uh, gently through dialogue, because we're coming, it's a dialogue, we're coming from different perspectives. He's a clinical psychologist who has run a Christian contemplative group for, for years. And I, you know, I'm a professor uh, of religion, but I also am a protect, pr- uh, practitioner in Buddhism. In a long time, uh, I, for a, a, a long time, both of us have worked in the area of Christian mysticism in a whole array of different ways. And those things are all integrated. And so what we're doing is introducing people to a whole shift in worldview and starting to think about contemplative life, literature, uh, understanding the world in ways that are unfamiliar, probably, uh, and to which most of mainstream society, uh, certainly the academic world, is uh, not very congenial let us say. So uh, that, that was the impetus of the book. And because it's dialogue, because it's back and forth, in some respects, you, you get a deeper introduction. And that book is the first of two books. We're actually engaged in something else now, which is a new set of recorded dialogues, which are specifically about what you do in the Christian mystical tradition. In other words, what do you actually do? And that's a big question mark for pretty much everybody because there isn't, uh, there isn't really much to guide people. And so what we're doing is, is giving really very, very clear guidance. And that comes from, uh, not from us, but from somewhere else. And I'll explain that later. So that's okay. an overview. <laughs> well, well, one of the themes that runs throughout the book, I mean, it's called In Apocalyptic Times. And in, in the book, both of you, um, in your dialogue, comment about the, essentially the current state of the world and the current state of humanity. And, and how, because of that, it seems like... Um, that's a reason for this book to exist because it's filling a hole that's that's missing in our society like we're we are not only as a you know quote unquote christian society not only are we not familiar with the the heritage of christian theosophy but there's there's even more going on there's there's kind of a a we're going through a spiritual crisis of a sorts and that's not the only crisis we're going through and so one of the things that you just mentioned in your overview of why you wrote the book is, um, well, it kind of made reference to that, but as a way into that subject, um, I want to ask if you think this has always been the case, because I know that even, even when, um, like some of the, these Christian uh, theosophists were alive, you know, they still encountered uh, resistance to some of their ideas and practices or themselves as persons. Um, do you think that it's a constant state of affairs to be, to be battling this, this uh, spiritual wasteland, or are things particularly bad today? I think we're in a, in a very, a different period than we were, say, 30 or 40 years ago. 
mm-hmm. uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And so the short answer is things are worse today. I mean, that's the, that's the short answer. Um, mm-hmm. It is true that, you know, when Jakob Bumme, the great German mystic, um, made, uh, he made known his first book, which was called Aurora or the Dawn, um, his minister, who was a Lutheran, forbade publishing it and was completely incensed by the very idea of the book. And so that was, that was basically how Theosophy launched, right? <laughs> and then Bumme, in his books, would say, well, you know, these uh, people in stone churches who think that just external activity is somehow going to make them utter or their lives better, they're just wrong. That's just mm-hmm. a mistaken view. Uh, you have to transform. You have to be engaged in a transformative process. And essentially, that's what Bama said most clearly at the end of his life. The end of his, late in his life, he, he wrote a book which was uh, very short, but extremely clear, and very few people know about it. So we've had that, bo- that book uh, retranslated by an absolute expert translator. And uh, we're going to make available, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, shortly here, because I think it's, it's um, hold on a second, let me see if I can shut off this thing. Huh. Probably not. So, uh, in terms of the era that we're in, Burma was in an era, uh, uh, nonetheless, uh, in which there was a general folk awareness of the existence of the non-physical realms, that there were aspects of life that were understood to exist in, in, in folk tradition. And this goes very far back. It's very ancient and was continuing in Germany. Uh, he was and he was familiar with alchemy, with a whole series of different um, uh, transformative traditions that he was drawing from. Today, even though paradoxically we have all of these books and all of these sources that are hypothetically available to us, the biggest issue is that the prevailing worldview is completely materialistic and very hostile, broadly speaking, to even the notion that there are non-physical beings or that when you die, uh, there's great hostility to the idea of, of uh, uh, posthumous continuity, um, you know, whether you go reincarnation or how you don't want to use the word reincarnation. Still, the idea of posthumous continuity itself is some, somehow completely heretical in contemporary society. So there's a long list of things, right? Plus, there is the surveillance society that we're now in. Uh, There are various things about the contemporary uh, situation in terms of uh, uh, prevalent, I would say, prevalent or dominant worldview, which are very hostile in a way that uh, even... Let's say hypothetically Christian nationalism, which is all which is all talked about uh, occasionally today. Let's say Christian nationalism took over. Would it be more hostile than the world you we're living in right now to transformative mysticism? I'm not sure it would. 
I think I think we're in a pretty hostile environment already. Uh, I'm not sure it would be a great improvement, um, but I'm not going to say it would be a step backward um, because of the problems that I'm just talking about. So that's why mysticism is, I think, very important to make known, to make it available to people, to make it make people aware, to at least allow people to know that there is an entire current that does not belong only to Christianity. It's also in the Platonic Greek tradition, as, as I talk about in Platonic mysticism, that is very contiguous with Buddhism, for example. Um, and people aren't aware of it. And I think it's quite important for people who are interested in this sort of thing. Obviously, if you hate the very idea of it, well, then go away and ignore it. Uh, that's mm -hmm. totally fine. Um, but for those who are interested, I think this is this is really something that is important in our current time. I, I uh, completely agree. I'm very glad we have a chance to speak to you today about all this because um, what occurred to me in, in the format that you chose, Arthur, for your book is that uh, you, you weren't um, developing ideas that were uh, merely um, written out uh, in essay form, of course. This is all a kind of lived knowledge uh, that you and Robert Foss have. Uh, ideas and uh, experience with ideas and um, a lifetime of assimilating and integrating uh, all of these themes and, and things that you've looked into, uh, into your own uh, being. And, it, and so when you're discussing all of these themes in your book, uh, what occurred to me is that this is all, it's all very real to you. Uh, and so it made it very real to me, the reader, and allowed me to think about all of the things that I have read and thought about and lived with as, as um, truths about reality or possible truths that became my new framework for how I want to exist and what I want uh, to be and my direction and my aim forward. So... Uh, in that respect, it, it feels like a very um, authentic uh, um, description of ideas that are, uh, that are more than three-dimensional, if you will. Uh, they're, they're alive. They're breathing. Um, and the other thing I would say is that uh, the, all of this comes down to, and it's mentioned a few times in your dialogue, uh, literally a regeneration of the soul. Uh, this is such a broad and deep framework for um, for oneself to 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 think about, to uh, work within, to journey, to quest about. Uh, that it, you know, for those as you as you've said who have the impetus to to follow this path. Um, you're, you're leaving more than breadcrumbs. I mean, this is a really slim volume, and yet, uh, I think Harrison said earlier in the show, I mean, this is really, it's rich. Uh, so I hope folks get to read it um, and, and kind of, um, we have a, I think we have a, a pretty bunch of savvy 
uh, listeners who are interested in this material. I really hope they get to read it. And uh, I'm looking forward to delving deeper into a lot of the the sources that you make reference to. Um, because uh, this is stuff that we, you know, this is stuff that we, even if we've come at it from different sources of material, uh, it, it's still of the same piece. Um, and I think that there are, many of us out there who are looking for just such a, uh, an entryway to this material, uh, which is what you propose in the introduction to your book. This is a, um, this is really accessible way to, uh, look at these themes and to begin to make forays or, or more serious forays into, um, into what our, uh, you know, holistic approaches to being a soul in the world. And well, I'll leave it at that. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to comment on, on something, well, Arthur said, and then on, on what you were talking about, um, about how this, this tradition exists within Christianity and very few are aware of it. I think that over the last many, well, many decades, um, there, there have been many, Many people in Western cultures who have gone on a, a you know a journey to find something, find that something that they're that they're seeking, and they often end up like in the East, and you know especially kind of like turn of the century, like 1900s, you had all kinds of people, well, and afterwards, you know, going to India, going to Central Asia, and um, you know getting involved with with Sufis and things like that, and which has been great, and and I like I like reading about all those traditions too. But th there has been a tradition, like right at home, that has essentially been of been of the same essence and with the the same uh, the same very similar practices as well. That has just been that they just haven't been aware of. And I think there's even a that's a a positive on the on the Christian Theosophy side is that, um, like I know just speaking for myself. I was raised Catholic. I was raised with Christian imagery and Christian and Christian ideas. You know, even if I never got too involved with uh, with the Catholic Church, or you know, I'm a I'm a lapsed Catholic. But that's kind of that that stuff that you grow up with is kind of it, it's in your bones if you've grown up with it. And when you find some people more than others can successfully find something in a foreign tradition, right? So you can have you can have people that will that will learn to be at home in a in a you know a, a Buddhist or a Taoist tradition or a Hindu tradition or a or a you know an Islamic Sufi tradition, but there's there's something very enticing about finding the the inner um, like the inner essence of the the own tradition that you didn't even know existed, and that that is so rich and um, it, it's it's like seeing seeing all the all that imagery and all those like dogmatics that y you were raised in in a totally different light and that actually become interesting because I know that for a lot of um, a lot of people that like that fall out of Christianity it's because well it might be boring it just seems like external like like you were saying these external practices and you do these things and it's just it's lacking a it's lacking something and i think that you know finding finding like this tradition opens something um it's uh it's like finding it's like finding a buried treasure it's it's um there's something that uh something kind of glorious and uh and fun about it 
I don't know. Did you have any comments yeah, on either of our comments? That's true. There? Yeah, well, what you say is true. And one of the, you know, one of the things we discuss in the book is the grail tradition and the idea of a quest and that we can be in a kind of barren society and feel we need something, but we're not quite sure how to frame that. And the grail tradition provides you with a lot of things. One is, one is um, the, the idea of a transformative tradition that has larger implications. It has implications for culture as a whole, because going on a grail quest is not only for yourself. In, in uh, Parsifal, it's about healing something that's actually wrong with the kingdom. That's, that's what it's all about. There's something wrong with the king. There's something wrong with the kingdom. And how do you heal that? Well, that's, that's where the grail quest comes in. And there's a chivalric code, a code of honor, how you deal with the world. Uh, all these things are very powerful. And so they, the, and the transformative aspects are not purely individual. Because if you read it um, well, then you realize that it's actually about a whole worldview. And that's what our book is doing. That's why we're drawing on that. It's not really us. It's just that we're making this uh, way of seeing things available for people. So that's one thing I would say. And the other is that, yes, there are things like centering prayer, and there are things that exist, uh, broadly speaking, in the Christian world, um, not very themselves very well known, but still they're out there. And I don't have anything negative to say about those things. The only thing I will say is that what Bob brings to the conversation is an emphasis on working through what he calls the burdens we carry, um, working through the psychological challenges that we have uh, in order to transform. And that's often overlooked. Um, that's certainly overlooked in something like mindfulness. Um, so you, you have people going around teaching mindfulness. And uh, as a secular tradition, now mindfulness is actually a specific thing within Buddhist meditation practice. It's an element. Uh, but what it was happened is people have pulled that out and, and made it a secular thing that they then can uh, insert into the institutions, uh, universities, for example, or whatever. But here's the thing. To what extent is mindfulness as such really transformative? To what extent does it engage us with the challenges of our dreams, understanding our dreams in relation to uh, the burdens we carry, the, the things that the the difficulties that we bring with us that we have things we've engaged in that have been maybe harmful and now we need to sort that out um mindfulness just makes you a very mindful sniper um and you can be a heck of a sniper um, but it doesn't necessarily in itself engage you with the questions concerning being a sniper right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, or whatever. I'm giving that as an example, but I mean, you could be a corporate sniper. Um, 
in some sense, in a metaphorical sense, uh, that's one of the burdens you carry then. And so mindfulness does not in itself engage with that. So that's why this, what we're talking about, you're absolutely right. It involves the soul. Um, and the soul, not in the richness of our inner psychic life, which includes dreams. If you want to use the ancient term soul and spirit, um, so body, soul, and spirit, it's traditionally a triumvirate within the Christian tradition, actually, going before the Christian tradition, but it's very ancient way of understanding. And that is that is about richness of life and transformation, uh, transforming ourselves into more, into better, more uh, uh, illumined or wise people. How do we do that? And that's really what we're starting. Um, what we're working on now in relation to this is um, we have a nonprofit called Hyros Institute. And Hyros Institute, we're creating some courses. And this takes a long time, actually, uh, because we're recording over a period of, um, you know, at least a year, uh, conversations and high fidelity between, between Bob and me uh, about our practice and what, what we do. And specifically what we're creating is a new way to guide. Um, and so we're going to have a course. We have a course that we're developing in Christian mysticism. Then we have a course on actually creating uh, sacred gardens, transforming where you live. Uh, that's in that's in uh, development. Uh, so it's a very practical set of things um, that we're working with. Uh, those are two courses that are in immediate development. One of us is a specialist in dreams and has published widely on dreams and dreaming. And so he's uh, talking about creating an online course as well uh, that that helps people work with their dream life. So these are all very pragmatic things that we want to do at Hyros Institute. So I, I mention that because the conversations may form a sequel volume to this one in which we go much deeper into the, the uh, practices and what, uh, what Bama in particular uh, offers people. But that's, you know, that's for the future. I'm just kind of pointing toward it now because it's uh it, it kind of comes out of what you were saying. So thank you for your kind remarks about the book. I think it it's a very unusual book. There's no question about it, you know. And some people probably hate it. Okay. <laughs> you know, but there are definitely people who have written me who love it and want to go further and that's the genesis of what we're doing on Hyros Institute. No. That's great. Yeah. Well, one of the things or points that's brought up is um, being in dialogue. It's having a, a continued discussion, an exchange, a conversation that's open between individuals who are uh, making inquiries into themselves, into others, into the nature of things as they really are. And What's very interesting about that is that you you even uh, have this broader context. You, in the discussion, you 
um, established that it's almost a, a kind of prerequisite, this openness, this dialogue with others, uh, to having a dialogue with other levels of reality and other people who may have passed, uh, who, are, who have been in our lives. And that's interesting for so many reasons to me, because uh, one, it, it affirms uh, very matter-of-factly the existence of other levels of reality or an afterlife where loved ones and other people have moved on, and if I understand that correctly, uh, but also the possibility that, um, and the importance of a continued type of dialogue or communication with uh, those people who have been important to us or, or part of our family, um, that, that there be this kind of ongoing uh, meeting of the minds, um, uh, which is, you know, on the face of it, a, a kind of a difficult thing to understand because of our materialist uh, worldview. Um, but but also, uh, because the mind is non-physical, it, it makes a lot of sense as well. So I thought that was a, a very interesting um, uh, kind of um, part of that discussion of the afterlife and, and, and being open and uh, having a kind of um, way to uh, receive communication or, uh, or ideas or thoughts uh, from places that we might not otherwise even consider uh, a source, a viable source of information. Was that also the section I think made? I think I think it made reference to Gichtel. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, the and in some of mm -hmm. his letters where he was writing about the the process he engaged in with his friend yes. that over over a, a large period of time after he died. Yes. And yeah. No. That that was a. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, what happened, the, the, the story is that uh, Johann Gichtel was a theosopher, practicing theosopher, and something of a hermit. Um, and Gichtel had a friend who committed suicide and was in great distress after death. And so Gichtel uh, worked with him uh, after death in order to pull him out of that circumstance. And uh, that kind of activity is uh, within a Tibetan Buddhist framework, actually fairly understandable. It ex that kind of view, it's it actually exists also in pre-Buddhist Tibet. There's a tradition called Bun, it's called Bun now, um, but in antiquity, uh, there was a tradition of working with the dead in Tibet. In other words, after people died, there, the assumption was there are things you can do to help them so that bad things don't happen. And that, that that's a very ancient uh, tradition within Tibetan Buddhism and actually also prior to Tibetan Buddhism, uh, so the idea of, of guiding the dead exists in contemporary, I can speak for Nyingma Buddhism, for sure. What is completely unfamiliar to people is the idea that it also exists 
in Christianity. <laughs> and uh, Gichtel would be an example of that, but he's actually not the only example. There are, there are others. I'm going to mention one, which, and for people who have any philosophy background, uh, this is going to be pretty mind-bending, because uh, in so-called contemporary philosophy, um, you have uh, occasionally people who, who refer to Schelling, the great philosopher Schelling. Uh, what most people are not familiar with with regard to Schelling is that he was, uh, and he doesn't make this that clear in his all of his books. A lot of his books are very clearly drawing on Burma, and Burma's mysticism. So, I mean, Schelling is not, he's writing these kind of abstruse mystical texts that are disguised as philosophy. That's essentially what he's really doing. Now, his wife died. His wife died, and he continued to have a life with her. In other words, he, he basically stopped doing, you know, philosophical writing, and he worked with his wife after her passing, and later published a book called Clara. And Clara is a book about life, continuity of life after death, and continuity between what he calls the nature realm and the spirit realm. That there's continuity between these two realms, and we're not aware of it. And so uh, we actually have a new translation of Clara, because there's one that's unreadable from Sunni, uh, bless Sunni's heart, but they made the print um, very, very gray and microscopic, and unfortunately in that translation, they actually uh, also there's some errors, and they're really pretty major errors in terms of who's who in the book. Um, and so we, uh, Bob commissioned a new translation of Clara, and so we have a brand new full translation of this, which is Schelling, Schelling's uh, uh, working through after-death continuity and how you work with, you know, someone who has died, essentially, uh, with whom you're very close. And that's, that's partly what Clara is about. Uh, and, of course, Schelling uh, is not known for this so much <laughs> in the academic world um, for some reason. I don't know why, um, but uh, maybe somebody can illuminate me on that. Uh, it's a great mystery. Um, but these kinds of things are what we specialize in. So uh, I really agree with you that uh, there are many things uh, that life experience, as Schelling had, can bring you, um, and it's really important to validate that these things can happen, right? Obviously, if somebody doesn't, you know, is totally vehemently and bitterly opposed to it, well, okay, you know, just go do your thing. Uh, it's no, it's no skin off your nose, right? Um, but for those of us who are actually interested in these things, and we think, huh, uh, that's it's really important to have voices out there that say, this is out there, and this is something that you should pay attention to, and that's basically what we're trying to do. Hmm. Kind of a total change of context, or, um, but what came, what just came to mind. Um, I was thinking about um, Jakob Burma and just some of the some of the background to him, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but his background and and throughout his life, I believe he besides writing some of these texts about these experiences that he had at a fairly young age and th- and throughout the you know the rest of his life, um, he was a cobbler. Like he worked. So there is this aspect of um, these practices and these traditions, not to mention just the ideas themselves, they don't have to be relegated to the monastery, right? So I think because lo- when, when people think about mysticism in the context of Christianity, they often think of the monastic setting, <clears throat> either... Um, well, maybe, and maybe f- for those who have like familiar familiarity with Eastern Orthodox tradition, they might think of you know, you know, Mount Athos or or some of the you know Russian mystics in in their um, hermitages or their 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 monasteries. But this is actually um, without secularizing the process. This is something that can be meaningfully engaged with and practiced just in the course of everyday life. Would that would be, would that be something you're, that you would agree with? Absolutely. That's, I think that's a vital part of the tradition. I'm not, I'm not, um, I think monasteries and monastic libraries are really valuable. Um, and I think th- they'll be especially valuable, that kind of thing, um, in the future, right? I don't think it's only relegated to the past. Um, at the same time, there's, in the Nyingma Buddhist tradition, there are two there are kind of two paths one is one is a path of monastics right so people become a monk or a nun um and you become you know and there's there's great obviously great benefit in that because you can concentrate on doing your practices or transformative practices but there's a second path uh which is also possible and that is late and that's that's a whole developed approach in which the practitioners are yogis in society, you could say, or shamanic, uh, use that term as well, I suppose. Uh, they're practitioners, but they're uh, not necessarily, in, well, they're not in a monastic setting. They're married, they, you know, have children, they live lives. They're engaged in these transformative practices, not only for themselves, but to help others, right? And so that line, that kind of lineage exists as well. So, so you have this kind of balance between, on the one hand, um, you know, a monastic and then also a non-monastic um, tradition. And th- the same thing, to some extent, is is entirely possible in the uh, elsewhere in the modern world. And you see something like that, actually, in the case of Burma. Um, When you look back at the history of mysticism, often it is monastics. So, for example, or ordained, you know, clergy. So you look at um, Eckhart or Towler, the great Catholic mystics, probably the greatest of all, really. Um, or Marguerite of Porret, um, in the sense that they are, to some extent, uh, separate. They they live lives that are connected to society. Most of Eckhart Ehrman's were to, to uh, in a lay language, to a lot of them, uh, to lay people, right? So, 
you know, Eckhart did reach out, um, but, uh, and this was around 1200, really extraordinary mystic, um, very accessible sermons, you know. Um, but I think what you're talking about is a vital part in our contemporary society, and that is uh, the idea that you can be engaged in these practices and still be in the world um, is an important thing. And so that's something that we're uh, really emphasizing in the book, actually, is the value of that. Mm-hmm. And that will come out, I expect, even further in this in this course that you're developing and in the, the further conversations that you and Robert will have. Um, because that's the that's one of the things that um, that struck that stood out for me um, is that this book it, it, it's like the first hints and you can get get an idea it's still hard to get an idea of okay well what exactly are the, are were, were these theosophers doing and you can get some some hints here and there but um, you know it, on the on the one hand um, there's the the mystery of it that kind of draws you towards it on the other hand there's almost kind of like a, I wouldn't want to have an instruction manual, you know, of of the sort that you might get in a self help book, right? It's like, oh, the ten things that you can do, and then you, and then it, it just <laughs> that would kind of, kind of like cheapen it a bit. But um, so, there, well, I don't know, maybe maybe that's just me, but uh, strike a balance between giving the really practical stuff and and keeping it, um, um, you know, mysterious at the same time because. Or what? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that that's the very nature of this material, right? It's, it's nonlinear and it's, uh, it's informal in some respects. And it's, you're also, because it's your own quest, you're, you're coming at it from wherever you are and whatever you know already. And you're, you're reaching for something that only you can find at the right time and in the right place. But, the, it what this does is it it gives further impetus in in whatever way feels natural to you, mm-hmm. and um, it was so funny because several minutes ago when you described one of your uh, courses that you're developing as as gardening, I um, just this summer you know I've, I've been uh, almost um, pseudo obsessively you know running out to to do things around the yard because I felt like it's been giving me something unlike any other time or season before. And my appreciation for just a clean landscape has been, uh, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, but I, you know, when I heard you say that, Hey, this is a course and we have some ideas about how this course. works or, or why <laughs> it can bring value to you. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going <laughs> to take that course. Uh, so it's just very funny that you mentioned that because, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm not, you know, at, at a job or doing some other, uh, taking care of some other things, I really want to be outside cleaning stuff up so that I can look at it and do something with it in my mind. Um, so uh, that that's fascinating to me. Well, there are different aspects to that because because there's the you know there are flowers and there's. Um, you know, bushes and, and there are different things that on the, on that level, but then uh, what Chris is doing is, is also, he's created in Germany, he lives in Germany and he and his wife have created a garden, which uh, it, 
includes uh, all these different aspects, which are drawn from ancient European tradition. And so he has um, different places within the garden that they've created with different statues, handmade elements, runes, um, because he, he draws, they draw from the rune tradition, uh, you know, for various reasons. And so there are different ways of doing it. I've been actually doing that here where I live as well. Uh, so there's, of course, the, you know, the flowers and the physical part of it. But then there's also one of the things we don't think about in contemporary society, uh, broadly speaking, it's a little different in Pennsylvania because you have Pennsylvania folk traditions um, that carried on uh, from, you know, from really archaic Europe. Uh, but for the most part, we don't have the idea of recognizing non-physical dimensions of the landscape, the spiritual or hidden dimensions of where we are. Beings, there are beings present. We don't even know they're there, right? That, that idea is very deep in Nyingma Buddhism, and it's there also in European folk tradition. What if it's true, right? What if it's true? If it's true, which the whole of European folk tradition says it is, uh, really, um, then should we pay attention to that? That's something that uh, we can raise. Because in these courses, these courses are not normal courses, okay? The word course probably isn't even a good good word. I don't even know what to call them. Um, we're just calling them that because we don't have another word. Um, but basically, these are co-explorations. They're designed to be... Um, I've got one already created, which is on uh, called Becoming Conscious. Um, it has... A whole series of experiments in it and you do the experiment yourself in other words uh, each of us do these things and it's it's about individual growth uh the same is true in the sacred gardens course the idea is you create a sacred garden of your own uh the word the operative word there is sacred what makes it sacred what makes the landscape sacred well you need to answer that because you're living where you live right um, and it's you. So so the same is true for all of this. Um, and so that's that's really the underlying kind of the dynamic of what we're creating. Um, it's a long process. This is not a five minute thing. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so I hope people can be a little patient um, because it's not been done before. What we're doing is new and unique. Um, and so it takes a while, you know, and. And uh, it takes a while to work with Bob, too, you know, schedule something and, you know, it, it might be a month out. And, you know, it's, it's just it's a lot of uh, uh, technical challenges. But the end result, I promise you, will be very, very interesting. <laughs> cool. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, back to back to the book. Um you give a couple, you and uh, and Bob give a, a couple pointers, and one of which near the end of the book is to just immerse or re-immerse yourself in the great literature. 
And so, of course, throughout the book, you've mentioned, uh, both of you mentioned a bunch of authors. So we've already mentioned a few like Blumo and Gictel. And um, so the Theosophers, you, you've, you, um, t- today you've mentioned uh, Parzival and like the Grail traditions. And so, th- so before the, before talking, I'd asked you if you could compile maybe just a short list. I don't know how, how many you managed to put together, but just some books that you think that are central that, that should be in, in every library or that you think are just kind of the, I, I, I don't know if, if you're, if you're going to pick books that are, that are, that you think are universal or the ones that have just spoken to you, but um, um, yeah, just let us, let us have it. What do you think? Uh, what, what kind of books do you recommend? Well, we've already, we've already talked a little bit, as you said, about, some of these authors um, and works and in the grail cycle, um, you know, and I think it's important just to be aware of these things. It's like Plato's dialogues. You know, I teach at a university and I would say it's very rare to have a student who's ever read Plato. It's unusual for a student to have heard the name Plato. Um, they might have, um, but it's no guarantee. And the chances that, that a student has read, say, Republic and knows about the allegory of the cave, those chances are vanishingly remote. Um, I would say approximating maybe 0.00001 for most students. Uh, So the whole idea with the book is not, here's a reading list. You need to uh, buckle down, people. It is rather that... uh, there are things that you should just be aware of that are out there. Just live in a world where you know that these things exist. They're out there. Um, And that world is much richer by having that in your head. So it isn't that you need to become a scholar of Parsifal and sit down and, you know, just hammer away at that thing. It's that knowing these things, knowing that there's a grail cycle and knowing the basics of it, which we provide actually in the book, um, that's really important. Knowing that Plato exists and uh, in terms of uh, reading, I mean, it's true. There's a lot that we've read. I mean, I've read the equivalent for sure because I get interested in something and it's not unusual for me to easily exceed the number of books um, in some interest that I read for my PhD. Um, so, uh, you know, I've done that many, 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 many times in different areas. And so I just read a lot, um, but I'm also a very fast reader and I don't, that's who I am, right? But I don't insist on that. What, what we're looking at in the book and what we're providing people is a way of seeing the world. And it's not dependent on particular books or reading particular books. It's a broader way of becoming familiar with the universe of literature. And the universe of literature includes all kinds of things. And where you go in that depends on you. So for somebody, it might be Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare, for somebody else, it might be something else. What calls to me and what I would what I would say has if I were going to say what are the most essential things 
that I have come across that changed the way I understood things, I would say one is uh, Dionysus the Areopagite, whose very short treatise, Mystical Theology, is in the Western European tradition, Christian tradition, essential. It's essential, because if you know that that exists, and you've read it, your view of Christianity is not the same, okay? There's something new that's been added, very short, doesn't take a lot, (laughs) but that's critical. Now, there are many other examples I can give you. Um, that's That's like short, right? But that's enough to give you an understanding of of something that transcends Christianity as such. Um, it's there in Plotinus. It's there in the Middle Platonists in general. It's there in the Amblichus. And uh, so it's pre- the same thing that you see in mystical theology is visible, certainly in Plotinus. Um, but mystical theology condensed it. Uh, it's actually visible also in the Heart Sutra and various other places um, all over the place in Buddhism. Um, but that's one. The second, I would say, is uh, there's one treatise, set of treatises by Burma, which are interestingly dialogues. And those we've had retranslated, and we're going to re make that available for people as part of this course. And that is very accessible. And again, it comes straight out of straight out of what you see in mystical theology. Uh, you can find the same thing in Meister Eckhart. You can find it in my fa- personal favorite is Johannes Tauler. There are two sets of their translations of, of translations of their work now available. Uh, Tauler and Eckhart are basically straight out of mystical theology. Uh, you take that and you apply it. You want apply it, you get Eckhart and Tauler. If you want advice, then you go to Boma. Still out of the same tradition. It's very, very clear once you understand it. And that's what we're trying to make available. Now, there is somebody you mentioned early, uh, at another point, and I'll just bring him in. And that is Nicholas Berdaev. Now, we mentioned, we allude to him in the book. Berdayev uh, is a great Russian philosopher whose philosophy was very pragmatic and came straight out of what we're talking about. Mystical theology, Eckhart, Burma, Berdayev. Berdayev, though, you know, he's a very colloquial writer. Um, his, his book, The Beginning and the End, is wonderful. Um, he also did a book uh, because he was born into Russia just as it was taken over by Bolsheviks. And so he lived through an extraordinary, called the Silver Age for some reason, of all of these uh, extraordinary people in the mystical world. And then the Bolsheviks took over and just stamped the hell out of everything and, kill, and killed millions and and. Uh, and created a nightmare society called the Soviet Union, which continued for a long time and finally fell. Um, And Berdayev experienced that. And in that 
time he understood, as Dostoevsky did, the nature of the beast, the nature of what had taken over society. And so he wrote about that in a book called Slavery and Freedom. And slavery is, you know, being under basically leftist domination or Marxist domination. It's what Lobachevsky calls, path, you know, pathocracy, um, you know, the pathocratic uh, rule by pathological people. Um, he, you know, that's a very valuable book. Um, Lobachevsky's, I would, uh, his book on political ponderology, Berdyaev understood exactly the same things because he had lived through it. And there are others I can, you know, I can keep going almost indefinitely because I have all this stuff in my head. Um, but it doesn't matter uh, because I'm just giving a few. And one of the things I wanted to provide was the essence, the essential ones. And then secondly, uh, I hint at what I'm referring to as pathocracy because uh, there are a lot of people out there who say, oh, well, I'm, I'm uh, uh, very much in favor of all of the, you know, kind of far left agendas that are out there. And yet don't realize that once those folks get in power, the first thing they want to do is target who? You. You. Right. You, the mystic, you, the religious practitioner. And so you have these people parading around saying that the, you know, this sort of power structure is somehow going to be just dandy. It's going to be just dandy. And we can't wait until the Bolsheviks are really in charge. Well, guess what happens when they're in charge? It's gulags and death camps for you, buddy. So that's something I wanted. Now, Berdyaev understood that. I'm just making it very, very clear um, because I find that if I don't, then people don't understand it. So I'm just saying this is something Berdyaev understood very clearly. Lobachevsky understood it. And so I'm just putting it out there uh, because this is an important thing for people to be uh, uh, kind of aware of uh, the history of Marxism. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is not a pretty history. No, on that last <laughs> point, on that last point you just made about the, you know, the the mystics and the and the religious practitioners that are, are the first to be targeted. Um, I know you mentioned you talked about this in in your, well, this isn't the only place, but in the New Inquisitions, the book that we interviewed you about the last time, <clears throat> and and but yet there's this odd stream in, um, like the the Western academia the intellectual you know community that all of the all of the totalitarian systems are gnostic in nature and so this word like the the gnostics are are have been um are are vilified to the point that it's like oh no gnostics oh those guys are gnostics you know the, those 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 fascists and those uh uh bolsheviks are gnostics and just have completely turned around the word um, when it's actually, if you, if you look, I mean, it, it's, it's exactly the opposite. I mean, I, I wrote about this recently on my Substack about the, the Cathars. I was just reading, you know, re reading about the Cathars again. And you look at the, the history of, of that. Of course, the Cathars were called the, like the worst sort of, of, um, heretics and just 
like anything bad that you could say about someone, the, that's what the, you know, the Catholics were saying about the Cathars. And of course, torturing them, uh, murdering them, killing them all over the place. And what did the Cathars do? I mean, the Cath the Cathars didn't even have a history of, of any of that. Um, they, they were a, a relatively sane bunch. Aside, you know, you might have, people might ha think some of their beliefs were a bit weird, which, you know, I, I'd kind of agree on some of them, but they weren't going around, like, they were actually known in the, in the southern, in southern France for living, um, transparently moral and decent lives and were actually, actually looked up to by the, by the community. And then here comes in the, the, the inquisitors, um, railing against these evil Gnostics, these evil heretics. And then who, so who were the ones, you know, sticking Pope's pears up of anuses and vaginas, uh, to tear them to shreds? Well, it wasn't the Cathars doing that. It was, uh, it was the inquisitors torturers. So it's, it's quite a, you know, so you have to make things clear, you know, like you, like you said, when you're, when you're saying something like this, well, it, it can be so flipped backwards that people will be looking at, uh, you know, Gnosticism and, and just, or, or mysticism and just getting it completely backwards to the point where the, the ones engaging in this practice are worse than the ones, you know, shoving a Pope's pear up, you know, someone's bumhole. <laughs> Sorry for the image. Well what what i would say what you're referring to is something that i i cover a little bit in my next book uh, i have a book coming out called american gnosis and uh political religion and transcendence that's the full title and uh in that book i mention something that i mentioned in new inquisitions as well and that is uh the thinking which is largely on the so-called right um, with somebody like Eric Vogelin, um, the idea is that uh, Bolsheviks came into power. The the Marxists are really Gnostics. Secretly, they're they're Gnostics. See, and he had this whole kind of uh, cockamamie theory about how totalitarianism is all quote Gnostic unquote. Now. That doesn't make any sense. I just flat up, it makes no sense. It makes no historical sense. It makes no logical sense. Why would he even say that? Because now he did have some idea that uh, when someone is delusional, they create a reality. Uh, they see a second reality that's not real, Right. And that was what he called Gnosticism, right? But it has nothing to do with Gnosticism as such. It's just this thing he concocted that then got legs and people could, they started to uh, apply it. And the problem with applying something like that is it's incredibly confusing to basically anyone normal looking at it because it's using this terminology of so-called Gnosticism, unquote, in order to explain totalitarianism, and it doesn't actually do that. That has nothing to do with Gnosticism in antiquity. And in the contemporary society, in my book, what I show in today's American society, who is using the term Gnostic, right? Who's using Gnostic memes? Who's creating memes about archons, 
archons and demiurges and and society being an artificial society being controlled by you know de- digital demiurges who's using who's creating those memes well it turns out it's normal people on the right because they look at the society that we're in and they say you know it looks like we're controlled in this kind of controlled truman show environment by these people uh who we could call archons and there's a lot of evidence of that. I mean, I, I have like a thousand footnotes. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm just pull, I'm not just pulling it out of the air. I'm giving you a lot of documentation for this. And so, who is looking at society and seeing it as controlled by created by demiurge uh, in the digital sense um, and archons as these kind of hostile powers? Well, it turns out there's a lot of that on the right. And so that doesn't work very well with this cockamamie idea that um, somehow the left is all, quote, Gnostic, so we should stamp them out or something. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is, much more sense, is actually the latter uh, set of memes. Because you can understand (laughs) why people created those memes. I mean, I'm not creating the memes, but I can understand why they created the memes. Because, you know, they're kind of expressing in the memes a reality, which they are experiencing. And they are on the right. And it turns out that the people on the right are the ones who are often being vilified. Uh, They are the domestic terrorists, right? They're the the patriots are the bad ones now. So we got to stamp out those patriots. So that is a phenomenon that I'm looking at in the book. So thank you for bringing it up. And uh, that's it's a very interesting thing to look at. Um, and uh, as you can tell, I'm not totally impressed with uh, the Vogelinian <laughs> view of Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. So did I make that clear enough? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and uh, and very much looking forward to the book. Um, did Oh, OK. So many things going on in my in my head right now. <clears throat> Just one really quickly is. Do you consider this book the like the continuation of New Inquisitions and the the Mystical State, or is this kind of a, a separate project? Uh, this is a uh, this book has many references to other previous books, and that's because all kinds of different things co- coalesce. Uh, it is definitely a sequel to American Gurus. Okay, um, but it combines elements from all these different books and it includes a lot of things that have never been written. There's nothing been published about them before for sure. Great. Major figures. No one has ever published about before. So it's exciting. I mean, um, it, it's, if this book doesn't have, if, if this doesn't deserve the term groundbreaking, then I don't know what does because it, is brand new stuff. Not everything, because of course, there are a lot of themes that I've touched on in the past, but the basic structure of the book, brand new, brand new. Awesome. Contribution of the book, brand new. So it's exciting. You know, I'm I'm looking forward to it, but we'll see. I mean, uh, there's there's time between now and uh, it'll probably be published in 2023. And now I'm also, I'm actually engaged in some other projects, which you also will find, I hope, uh, interesting, or at least uh, entertaining. (laughs) 
And, yeah. uh, you know, that's for the future. And then creating, creating some courses for the nonprofit, I think, is, is valuable. And then bringing out occasionally translations. So we have mm-hmm. new translations of some books that Bob has commissioned. And eventually we'll bring those out through New Cultures Press. Okay. And uh, those are widely available, not only on the Amazon um, monolith, but also uh, Barnes and Noble and various other sites. We try to make sure they're uh, they're available on every venue, not just the uh, single, you know, the single well, dominant one. Well, I I just want to get back to the memes for just a moment because okay. I think it's a very interesting uh, <laughs> point and and subject for your new book. And I think speaks to the idea that those on the right needn't be f- fundies uh, or or Bible thumpers or dogmatic about their faith, um, but that there is a perception among many, uh, maybe on an intuitive level, uh, that's expressed by these memes, that there is a level of spiritual warfare, if you will, that exists in 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 the world today uh so it's funny it's cheeky it's uh but it's also on some level i think um pretty insightful um and i i'm looking forward to reading that section in your book about that i don't know if you would agree with all that but i it's um it's it's you know when when you see on this popular uh social media level any uh, addressing of of evil as it may exist in a kind of uh, spiritual or non-physical form that that kind of goes beyond the political and goes beyond the you know approaches the powers and the principalities. It it's very interesting to me. It it's uh, it says that there is a recognition um, in spite of having the you know the. The, the spiritual framework horsewhipped out of out of so many people uh, that there still is this um, this uh, perception of it an acknowledgement of it um, and I I just wanted to add while I'm saying that that I think it's uh, it's great Arthur that you can come at all of this material from these two different directions one uh, being you know the looking at what totalitarianism is and has been for so long and, and the forms that it's taken and the movements that we've, we can point to and say, yeah, that was a pretty, uh, pretty malevolent form of, of uh, totalitarianism. But also um, to say, well, yeah, but here's the other side of the coin. And, and we don't just want to know what, uh, real gnosis isn't, but we want to know what it is. And so I think a lot of people who delve into either subject matter tend to stay in, um, in their corner and specialize, but you have, you have come at this from both sides as it were. So I just wanted to say that because, uh, uh, just to reiterate, we, you know, our first show with you was about your book on totalitarianism. Um, and this is coming at the subject from a completely different direction. So it's kind of like bookends until we, until we get to your third book, hopefully. (laughs) Well, on, on the, on the, the memes, um, 
something came to mind. I read a, a book a few years ago. I think the name of the guy was Glenn Farron. And can't remember the title of the book, but it was on apocalypticism and the and the Nag Hammadi. Uh, so apocalypticism and Gnosticism, as as he called it. But um, um, we're just what can I say really quickly? Well, he he kind of does engages in some of the same um, you know deconstructing of the the misapprehension of of what Gnosticism is, but. Um, kind of along the lines, ah, well, I'll skip that. But one of the conclusions that he comes to about the, the whole apocalyptic literature tradition, whether that was, um, there are some like e Egyptian apocalypses, of course, there's the, the Hebrew apocalypses in like the, the first century. And then there's the, then there's the, the Nagamadi li library, uh, the apocalypses within that. And he points out that there's a political dimension to all of them, that it seems that all of these apocalypses, when the, these apocalyptic writers were all writing in the context of there being something terribly wrong going on in the political situation. This could be a foreign occupation. This could be like corrupt leadership, but that the the two were intimately uh, connected and that the, the whole idea of a, the apocalyptic, um, like the, the revelation of the God and the return of the God and the, the setting right and, or the setting back to order of the cosmos, um, the, the, that rejuvenation of the, of the cosmos was this political, well, it, it's not totally reduced to the political situation, but that's at least one element to it is that this political situation needs to change. Um, and here's, and that was how they envisioned it was in these apocalyptic terms. And so it seems like apocalypticism is almost in that specific sense of um, you know almost limiting limiting it to the the apocalyptic you know tradition the, the literary tradition. It seems to emerge, and we we maybe we're even seeing the emergence of this this new apocalyptic tradition in the in the memes in the meme culture. Is that this this seems to be how how people react when these things go on, and it's a uh, you know, there's some kind of like cosmic rule that, uh, you know, given the technological society, memes will develop and they, they will, they will show you the truth. Um, but, uh, well, did you have a, did you just, did you have a, a question or did I interrupt or no. do we just want to, do you have anything to say in response to that, Arthur? <laughs> yeah, I do. And that is, uh, basically what most of the memes in the book are expressing is, that people want to be left alone to live a normal life. That's mm -hmm. it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, basically, that's it. Um, and they see systems of surveillance or directives uh, from a centralized power system as interfering in that, uh, you know, or whatever. And so the it's fairly simple, really. I think that probably is a a kind of common denominator for what you're talking about. Uh, but today, the, the power structures are much more elaborate. And uh, the systems of control are much more elaborate. And uh, capacity for dissemination of propaganda is, is uh, much more elaborate. And so uh, it wouldn't be surprising... In the book, basically what I'm arguing is that Gnosticism as such is not really what we're talking about in terms of contemporary American society. It's neo-Gnosticism. It's a new phenomenon in which these elements 
of ancient Gnosticism, so-called, I mean, I'm not even sure the elements were all there, really, um, but they are instructive for the situation we, situations we have been in over the last, say, 100 years, and that's why Gnosticism has become a thing. Um, it's become visible in neo-Gnosticism, has become visible in new ways because it expresses a critique of centralized power. And that's uh, that's a modern contemporary phenomenon that really has nothing to do with Gnosticism in antiquity. That's not even what my book is about. Um, I think those are two completely separate things, even though you can find some parallels, um, you know, Roman Empire and all that. Um, and, uh, you know, decline of the fall of the Roman Empire, decline and fall of the American Empire might be related, but that's not really the point of my book, mostly. Mm-hmm. A little bit. It's in there. <laughs> I have Spengler. I have some historians of uh, some uh, historian, uh, historical philosophers, you could say, or theorists of history in there, including Spengler. Um, so, yes, there is that, there is that um, element. But the book is really about our society today and what's going on and much more about that than anything else. Great. So, How much uh, are you running out of time? How much time do you have, Arthur? I just want to know where if we should ask some more questions or we're, gear towards wrapping up. Where are we at? We're, we're a little over an hour. Um, yeah, an hour, 20 minutes. And, is uh, how long, well, how long we've been recording. Right. Okay. Well, where would be a good place to draw it to a close? Um, we could we could do a kind of, uh, you know, overview, a summary. Yeah. Well, before we do that, um, I just want to ask a quick a quick question about the translations that you guys are releasing. Because um, you mentioned two so far. Well, you mentioned one in the book um, that you've mentioned today as well, the Clara by Schelling. Um, and then you mentioned the Bluma's last book or late book, uh, Christosophia. Um, how, how many of those translations do you still have in the works? And, you know, do you have any, are, are any coming out soon or when should, when should we be able to procure these items? Well, one is not Christ of Sophia. The most recent no. one is actually, it's a late book, uh, treatise on supersensual life. And we have oh, a okay. brand new, really expert translation on that. Okay. Supersensual life. Mm-hmm. Um, just just reflect on those words a second. Supersensual life. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one. Uh, Bob has engaged in the translate committed to the translation of all of the work of John Portage, who's arguably the greatest mystic in the history of England, uh, certainly one of the great mystics of all time. And so one translation of that is available. It's called Sophia. Um, that's never been available in English before, even though he was an English writer. Um, uh, that's the history of mysticism um, in a nutshell in the West, which is um, even a writer, in a great writer in English, his works disappeared and you have to retranslate them at great cost out of German where they survived in translation. How crazy is that? I mean, that's the kind of nuthouse reality of, of Western mysticism right there. Um, in terms of uh, how it has been regarded historically. Uh, it's a great loss. 
that we don't have those manuscripts, the original English manuscripts. So Bob has committed to re, you know, having these retranslated. The first of these is available, which is John Portage's Sophia. And uh, that's a fairly large book, and, and they're coming out in sequ- sequence. So uh, the biggest of them is called uh, Göttliche und Vara Metaphysica, which is uh, Divine and True Metaphysics. Uh, it's a vast work that also includes, um, you could say, cosmology regarding afterlife experience. Um, really amazing uh, book. I remember reading it many years ago in Germany and um, really being just, um, it, it was mind-bending to experience that kind of work. Um, I wouldn't expect most people... What's more important is that I think people engage in their own journey and their own spiritual journey. I think that's, if you're called to that, I think that is the critical thing. And how you do that depends on your own kind of what Bama calls signature. We each have a signature. We have a kind of inner set of uh, configurations that make us who we are. And our signature, realizing our signature is very important. So for some people, you know, like Bob, uh, you know, making these books available is part of his signature, right? Um, But that's not everybody's signature, obviously. Uh, Mine is different. Uh, Yours is different. So everybody needs to realize more fully who they are. And the course to that, the quest on which they realize that is individual. The grail quest is your grail quest. And so that's that's really what I would say. Not everybody's called to read, you know, divine and true metaphysics. Um, only some people. And that's great. That's totally fine. But it is good that you know it's out there, right? Yeah. That it exists. Suddenly, your world is a little bit bigger, you know? It's a little bit richer just knowing that. And that's enough right? Um, To know these things are out there means we're living in a bigger, more expansive world, and I think that's really valuable. So that's a lot of what we're really doing in a nutshell. And what I'm doing also is pushing back against centralized power because I know where that leads historically. And what is that all about? Stephen Huller, out out in California, he's a Gnostic uh, founder of the Ecclesia Gnostica. He said, freedom is critical. It's essential for alchemy in a voluntary society. Freedom is the basis for spiritual practice and spiritual alchemy because you must have it. If you don't have that, then this kind of transformative path becomes much more difficult. So I think he's right. He wrote a whole book on that, and he's absolutely right. So that's what I would say joins those two things together. And I realize not everybody is necessarily on board with everything that I'm saying. That's fine. That's totally okay. As long as that worldview is not imposed on us. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's totally fine. As long right. as the other worldview is not imposed. Once it's imposed, it's forced demanded, then freedom becomes, uh, is gone. And then all the things, the quest, all the things we're talking about become basically almost impossible. 
So that's why freedom is so critical. Well, <laughs> I think that's I think that's a good point to end it on, Arthur. Unless you wanted to, that was a great summary of of what we just talked about and of the book. Unless there's anything else you want to summarize about the the conversation or the book, um, what do you think? I think that's a good place to end, and right. I'm. Uh, happy we had a chance to continue our conversation. It's fun. I enjoy it. And uh, as you as you can tell, I also am not pulling any punches. I'm just no. giving it as it is, and uh, that's that's how it is. So, no, it's been great. Uh, it was I appreciate a, a the chance to uh, to uh, have a conversation. We do too. It's a pleasure yes. having you back. We will include some links to um, to Hyros to. Um, the the New Culture Press um, to your website and uh, any any others I can think of or that you want to send me I'll put them in there as well so people can find you and Excellent. all of all of your stuff and we'll talk again um, maybe before the next book comes out maybe when the when the new book comes out but um, either way looking forward to it and good luck with everything. Arthur, with your courses and translations, books, looking forward to all of it. So thank you. Hey, thank you. And uh, it's hyros.institute. That's the, that's the site. Right. There's, there's another one, but that one is just a, a pointer site at this point. Uh, okay. We consolidated so that we have one Hyros site, you know, and then New Cultures Press. So thank you. I appreciate it. And okay. uh, we'll fun do. conversation. All right. Absolutely. Until next time. <laughs> Until next time. Thank you, guys. All right. Talk Thank to you, you later. See you, Arthur. Take care.